Coming to you live from the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas and Money 2020, this is Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic. Bankadelic, the colorful side of finance, where we supply expert views, riff on the news, innovate and investigate, actionable insights, unscripted banking with a caffeine kick. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, inviting you to sit back, grab a cuppa, kick up your feet. Here we go. If you're looking to grow your digital banking business, check out Lemonade LXP, the digital growth platform for financial institutions and fintechs. Lemonade LXP has both ingredients you need to drive digital growth, a learning experience platform that uses daily micro-learning to give staff the knowledge and confidence they need to promote and support your digital capabilities, and a digital adoption platform that supports your digital capabilities with technology walkthroughs that you can author in just minutes. So if you're rolling out new technology, merging with or acquiring another FI, or just looking to drive digital banking growth, you gotta drink the lemonade. For more information, check out Lemonade LXP at www.lemonadelxp.com. Thanks for tuning in to yet another special episode of Bankadelic coming to you from Money 2020 in Las Vegas, our second consecutive year here. And we're just having a ball pumping out the interviews, but each and every one we've handpicked beforehand and want you to know that these are special people and no more so than the person I'm about to talk to, Wayne Miller. Based in Bethany Beach, Delaware, Wayne is the Senior Vice President Innovation Programs at ICBA. With a career spanning close to 40 years, Wayne is a results-focused leader dedicated to driving high value through corporate innovation and helping early-stage companies evolve and thrive, I should add. He has deep experience in multiple verticals, including financial technology, healthcare, IT, professional services, retail, and transportation. He's got a demonstrated record, I can vouch for this, of building successful strategies to improve performance in both large corps and startups. He's also passionate about people and customers and has a proven history of attracting and retaining the best, which is how you're making me feel right now. I have hopefully attracted the best, and I say hopefully attracted because you were gracious enough to make your time. Wayne, welcome to Bankadelic. Lou, thanks for uh, having me here. Appreciate the compliments, uh, probably more than I deserve for sure, but uh, great to be here with you at Money 2020, which is amazing always, and just uh, so many thousands of people obviously focused on this industry, trying to hopefully make it a little better for everybody. Yeah, and I want to make it clear, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. A lot of people bandy about the word innovation in their titles or their LinkedIn bios. You are an innovator going way back in a field that I'm passionate about, music. And I'm wondering if you can share this patent that you worked on that changed the DJ world forever and ever. Amen. Yeah. So um, thanks for asking about that. that that's, uh, I'll have to get in the Wayback Machine here for just a minute. But um, when, when I was going to college, uh, I needed to make some extra money. And so there was a, a saloon in town there called C.J. Barney's and the Wooden Keg and another one called Zelda's Greenhouse when I went to Pitt. 
And so I would spin records there for uh, 35 bucks a night and uh, did it five nights a week, which uh, considering I had free housing was good money. I could afford a car payment and all that kind of stuff. But in the course of doing that, um, we used to mix and blend records um, entirely with using our ear, a single, uh, usually headset, uh, and do the, doing that orally, right? And a friend of mine by the name of George Lamble and I started to explore the capacity of being able to do that using your eyes, doing it visually as well as doing it orally. And the idea there was we needed to capture the signal of the bass beats off of the records without disturbing uh, the, the signal as well. And then once those were in sync, giving some sort of an indication that they were in fact in synchronization. So uh, we developed a product called the Beat Meter, and you would uh, take the, the, the connections from the back of the turntable, run it through the Beat Meter, and then back into the amplifier, and it would keep track of the bass beat of that particular record, and so you would see a light flash, one for turntable one, a two for turntable two, and then when they were in sync, you would see four greeny LEDs in the center that would come on to say, hey, you've got these beats synchronized, right? Wow. So that was the start of, and, and we were able to patent the technology. We used... Um, we actually used a heart rate monitor chip to, to, to manage the, the, the bass beat, which is how we were able to, to determine it. But what was also kind of cool about the tech is we could do a minute sampling in five seconds. So we, could, we, could, we, didn't, have to, we didn't have to go through a full cycle of a minute or two to get that. And, and it would still adjust a little bit. And then you could adjust the pitch of the record. You know, one of the things you didn't want to do when people were out there dancing was to, to break the beat because they uh, would throw things at you. <laughs> so, I promise not to throw anything yeah. at you. <laughs> and then the, the product evolved, and we started doing it by, by Beats Per Minute. We then created another thing called the Beat Counter. So, yeah, that was my first, uh, not my first foray into, into but, but the first real business that, that I built, uh, you know, was able to create some intellectual property around it and then ultimately uh, transact that business and sell the, yeah. sell, sell the licensing to it. So. I can vouch as a musician and a club goer that I have seen this technology in action. I never knew until now who pioneered it. So yeah. on behalf of all the musos out there, thank you. Thank, well, you're welcome. Yeah. I, uh, I, I probably sold it too cheap, but, you know, again, lessons learned and uh, probably should have uh, done a little, some things differently there, but that was, uh, that was a few years ago, so we'll moved on from there for sure. Yeah, and speaking of business, when it comes to banking, and I have encountered this, maybe people are just thick, maybe they don't know any better, is that you've got community bankers, right? ICBA stands for Independent Community Bankers of America. And they think, well, community bankers are over here. Innovation and tech, that's over there. That's not something they care about. They probably still use paper deposit slips. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Take us under the hood in terms of the work that you do there and Give me some examples of how the work ICBA is doing breaks that stereotype. That's a great. That's a great question, Lou. You know, first of all, I think a lot of folks get technology and innovation confused, and they are really two different things. Um, innovation doesn't necessarily require technology; it just requires innovative thinking, actions, etc. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can always think of Joe Castilla from her bank, uh, who's well known and. And, you know, Jill had a... Um, she's great, by the way. I yeah, love Jill. She's terrific. But, you know, so she had a... And I'm not sure I have the facts entirely right on this, but I think I'm pretty close. You know, she had a branch that she was giving some consideration to shutting down, and they decided to turn it into a co-working environment. Mm -hmm. And so that has turned out to be, you know, very, very successful. The point I make there has nothing to do with technology. You know, I think she spent fifteen or $17,000 to do some renovations to upgrade, to create this 
opportunity for a community to have a place to come and do co-working, right? Mm -hmm. So is that technology? No, it's, but, but it, is, it is innovative thinking. It is innovation, exactly. And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Jill is Citizens Bank of Edmond. That's correct. And yeah. for those of you listening, that bank in Oklahoma predates Oklahoma statehood. That's how much of a stalwart and a building block it has been in that community. Yeah. And when I think of community banks, that's what I think of. These are institutions that build the community, bind the community. Yeah. So one thing I was curious about, I don't know much about it, so it would be great if you could fill me in, is think pardon me, ThinkTech Innovation Initiatives and what that involves and how you're getting the rubber to hit the road. Yeah, you know, again, another great question. So, you know, five years ago, uh, based on the vision really of Kevin Tweddle at the ICBA, um, the community banking needed to, a little bit of a shot in the arm as it related to a more structured approach to, to innovation and new technologies. You know, if you're a $250 million bank and, you know, and, and, you know in, in a rural area, et cetera, how do you begin to source solutions that could help make your bank really, what we worry about is, is really sort of two things, but we say it a couple different ways, which is the solutions that we try to provide to the bankers today have to either make them money or save them money. The mm-hmm. other way to look at that is yeah. to make them more competitive, more efficient, and certainly more profitable. So if the solutions that we bring to bear today don't help the bank with that initiative, if you will, or, or, that, or that approach, it's unlikely going to be a candidate that we're going to work with. So what we started to do was to begin to understand what are the points of friction, what are keeping these community bankers up at night, and can we go and find in the fintech world solutions that can help them solve those problems, right? Mm -hmm. And that's precisely what we started doing five years ago. Um, And so we started with a single cohort, which was 10 companies, and we we started with a selection committee inside of the ICBA, a group of bankers, about 30 of them that say, hey, these are the things that we're worried about. We kind of create our shopping list, if you will, uh, going through that process and say, okay, let's go out and look for uh, a solution that helps with check fraud. Let's go out and help a solution that helps with workflow. Let's go out and find a solution that helps with document management, loan underwriting, et cetera. And so we go out and we find and we, we get companies to apply to participate in our programming. And then we go through an interviewing process with them and try to pick the best ones we think are going to be most fitting based on our bankers' feedback. So that that advisory committee and is also our selection committee. So we help to source the companies and then our bankers help make those decisions about which companies to go after. That is so cool. Instead of a piecemeal approach, it sounds like it's a really communal approach, but also a collaborative approach on and, every side. And, and Lou, let me tell you, and that's the key. You know, there's a lot of incubators, accelerators, programs like this across the country. Some of them do quite well, and they're very successful, and I don't mean to diss them in any way, shape, or form. But I think what we've been able to do, I think so successfully, is is to create that collaborative environment that you mentioned, where you know, we start with the problems, we find the solutions, we bring the bankers and the fintechs together in an environment where they can, they can exchange ideas and collaborate effectively around how to sculpt and mold those solutions to make them uh, you know, more, more uh, appealing to, to community banks. And, and that may be related to, to pricing and cost or perhaps the situation we've seen with a company, for example, that had a great desktop situation, but the bankers wanted a mobile solution. So the founder of that company had never built a mobile solution, figured out how to do it, built it, and then has had great success. So they get a lot of guidance and direction from the bankers. 
and the fintechs can test their, their theories and so forth. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is most of the companies that we're working with are what we refer to as bank ready. So these are companies that are already in market and doing business but want to truly accelerate or expand their go-to-market. We can be very helpful with that. Yeah, and it sounds like you're also playing a role in getting them to refine and sharpen and laser focus their technology. If they're not working with you, I don't think that process would be nearly as efficient. Um, you know, so for example, with our accelerator program, and we do a number of innovation programs, but with our accelerator program, you know, it's 10 weeks. Uh, they're going to see uh, well over 100 banks over the course of that 10 weeks. Wow. And they're going to do it in 30 minute increments, where to your point, they get the ability to, to, to like you said, Get that, get that laser focused exactly on the specific pain of the bank or the need. Or oftentimes, too, there are new ideas that the banks didn't give consideration to or didn't even know existed. So we've seen a lot of solutions come through. But our bankers, um, you know, it, it's not a new idea, Lou. You just listen to what people tell you and try to help them find solutions to those problems and try to bring the right people together and try to vet the companies well and give the bankers the environment that they need to, to, to grow. And, you know, a lot of folks suggest today that community banks are dying. I will tell you, it's just the opposite. Oh, yeah. Opinion. In I fact, mean, I was going to ask you about that because it's worth amplifying. I've covered this on some other podcasts, but I don't know that it can be repeated enough is the idea that let's give listeners an idea why community banks are so important and why in many aspects they're going out there and doing things that the big dogs can't do. No, I mean, look, first and foremost, they're relationship driven. You know, uh, as we look back and reflect this past year over the SVB issue, right? I mean, we had a number of companies who were banking, you know, that were fintechs that were banking with SVB. And they, after that occurred, decided to withdraw their money and put it into smaller community banks. And one of the reasons that a lot of them elected to do that was because now they have the CEO of the bank's phone number, so if they need some help on a Sunday afternoon, they have somebody they can call. Yeah, Jill Castillo passes her cell phone number out to everybody. I think well, I got it in my phone somewhere. There, there, there you go. My, my, and, that, and that's very much the way they are. You know, and, and, and I think you're right. They are, um, they are leaders in their communities. They care about their communities. Many of them are third and fourth generation who have been in those communities for you know, these banks are 100 years old or better in most instances. As you mentioned about Jill's bank, right? You know, uh, again, predating, uh, you know, Oklahoma uh, as, as a state, which is quite remarkable. But, but the, the, the point is, is that these people care genuinely about their communities. They're active in their communities. The other thing, too, is look, you just look at it statistically. Many, the, the trillions of dollars that community banks hold, the number of jobs that they provide, but also remember that small business and agricultural loans, the majority of those are coming from community banks because they are in the rural areas where those ag loans are required. They know how to work with bankers, uh, I mean with farmers and bankers together to, to, to make sure that those are done efficiently. Uh, and, and then small business is highly dependent on community banks because they will make the, they will take the risks more based on character than perhaps the big banks do that do it strictly on statistics yeah. or numbers. So I think it's, uh, again, I think community banking's here to stay, and that's, you know, uh, and, and, and our job without question is to support these passionate people who drive these banks in their communities, who care about what they do. They're a different breed of cat. I love working with them. It's, 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 a, it's a pleasure, and it's pretty easy to, to, to drink that ICBA Kool-Aid. Oh, know, yeah. Not only drink stuff. the Kool-Aid, but eat the turkey, because as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, or could be hamburgers, I'm a burger guy. Also a pizza guy, but that's another podcast. Um, this idea that 
I want to say the statistic is accurate per federal government figures. 99% of businesses are small business. Right. But what you hear a lot of time from big banks is, well, it's not worth working with small businesses. The margins are too small. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Margins, businesses, these are people too. And what they're building is fabric. Yeah. And, and look, the other thing too is when you bank with a community bank, those dollars are going back into the community. Yeah. Right? In, in every instance and creating more lending opportunities for people who want to start small businesses. Uh, obviously, you know, I think about the entrepreneurial aspect of that, which I know for me and a number of the businesses that I've owned and operated over the years that without community banks, I'm not sure I would have had the same opportunities. How about that? So you got to walk the talk and get them to walk their talk before you ever wound up in this position. So yeah. that's, that's yeah. incredible. Now, one thing I'm curious about, without trying to be negative, more realistic, right? We've got inflation, interest rates rising. There was a lot of gloom and doom, not only with Silicon Valley Bank, but when FTX went under, Binance, which is their big competitor, run by a pretty unscrupulous person, by the way. They look like they're in trouble. And you see a lot of signs where people are spooked. They're cautious. The stock market hasn't exactly been performing the way people were used to. When you look at this environment and where community banks are situated in it, what do you see as some of the challenges that need to be met head on for community banks to keep thriving? You know, um, gosh, big, big question, great question. Um, you know, Lou, I'm, I'm not entirely sure where to begin there except to say this is that, you know, um, you know, there's a, there's an example that I'll give you. There's a uh, there's a bank in, in the South that supports the uh, the, the the manufacturing of uh, of motorhomes, and when you look at that industry over the course of the last year, and during COVID, the motorhome business was thriving, right? Yeah. Of course, now not so much, right? Money's expensive. People bought these things during COVID to go and see the country, whatever it is that they were doing. Some of the people were living in them, et cetera. And now they can't necessarily afford the payments, these sort of things. So, so what's happened is that industry has slowed down. So as a result, that manufacturer has slowed down. As a result of that, they're laying people off, et cetera. Mm. So how does that impact that community? And I can assure you that if it was a big bank, that the people in that community who are working for that manufacturer would not be given the same opportunities and the assistance and the help and, and the grace and the, and, the, and, and, and the compassion that that community bank in that particular town is, 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 is providing. Yeah. And, and, and I just don't think you're going to get that. So I think, you know, kind of an example of how community banks perform and approach their communities differently because they're, they're there for the long run and they've been there for the long run. And those are people that those bankers go to synagogue or church with every weekend. Sure. Kids play on the football team together, mm -hmm. all the things that we know and think about as community banks. So, um, you know, I also think that they're very focused on the, um, uh, the, 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 the geographic and the demographics of their particular area and making sure that they, they, they know what's going on. Because, yeah. again, they're relationship-driven. Yeah. And it may even go so far as to say that if you took a community bank that was in Grand Forks and tried to 
lift it and dropped it, let's say into Victorville, California, still a community bank, very relationship-based, but there's an entirely different set of values and needs, and it would take some adjustment. So there's really the sense I get a customized experience, but not contrived in some room with a whiteboard. It's living it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, I think the big banks really continue to, to, to uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the, the pressure that they put on the smaller banks um, is obviously cost, convenience, those sort of things. The other thing, too, is we have a population that's changing dramatically. We look at Gen Z and Gen Xers and all that, millennials, and how they want a bank. Many of them have never been in a branch and don't understand the need or the value of having a relationship with the loan officer or the president of the bank, that sort of thing. But the other thing, too, is, you know, um, the, the big banks, I think, are, are driving banking more towards a commoditized environment. Exactly, exactly. And, and the small banks aren't, right? I mean, look, there are certain things that a bank does. It accepts deposits, it makes loans, and, do, you know, there, there's a lot of commodity services, if you will, that are part of that. But what you can't buy and, and is not a commodity is the relationship that you enjoy with that banker uh, to help you with that first house or help you with that business or help you whatever it may be. Yeah. And, and those bankers can do that because they can make judgments somewhat obviously on the, the things that are important, the scores and what have you, but also on character. I just did a podcast recently where a fintech <clears throat> executive talked about the idea that you can go beyond the FICO score. And here are all these metrics we can analyze. Here's where we can pull the statistics. This is the data we might use, which is all great. But haven't community banks really been doing that for years in terms of the personal angle? Well, I know what your FICO score is, but I also know that you're a person who shows up for people in the community exactly, when you're yeah. needed, and they can bring... That's a calculus that, to me, is just as forward-thinking as using the data. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, like I said, I think they have a capacity to understand the character of the individual. Chances are they may have known that person's mother or father or family or grandparent, right? So there's, there's a lot of component parts that come into that that I think, you know, one of the things people have a tendency to say when I, when I look at it from the fintech's perspective as opposed to the banker's perspective is that community bankers are risk-adverse. I always challenge that because I actually don't believe that to be the case. Mm. I believe community bankers, just because what we've talked about, if, if we were just simply that machine that judges the FICO score and says yes or no, I mean, if you go and apply for an American Express card, right, it goes through the appropriate algorithm, does a soft check, pull of your credit, et cetera, and then says, no, you don't ever speak to anybody. Yeah. No one says, well, geez, Wayne, you know, um, you got a little bit of a wrinkle here in your, your credit score or, or this or that or the other thing. Don't make a judgment and gamble on the person that who you are. So my point is, is that, uh, you know, I think community bankers actually know how to mitigate and manage risk very well. Oh, because, yeah. and Which doesn't make them risk adverse. It makes them risk savvy. And I think there's a difference in how you look at that. I mentioned this in a podcast earlier today, that you can go on the Internet or the dark web, buy an identity for 75 bucks, nurse that identity for a little bit of time, and then I could apply it to a credit card company. And because they're running everything through algorithms and artificial intelligence, get approved for that credit card. Whereas a community banker has such a chance to see a person face to face that when an application comes in and it's like that, they've got a bullshit detector that a lot of the big banks don't have because they're relying totally 
on an automated computer-driven process. Yeah, it's a numbers game. It's a higher volume, all those sorts of things. And, and look, they, they, I'm sure they, they do some good things as well. But what I do know at the end of the day is they don't have a great regard for community banks and yeah. would love to take their business away. Yeah. So that's something we're always keeping an eye out for. The other thing, too, is look. The, the last part, is we, as you mentioned earlier, about you know, so where, where we, if we had to sit down at this conversation a year from now and kind of what do we see coming forward, you know, you, you, you can't turn on the television or listen to the radio driving down the road or pick up a newspaper day without hearing something about artificial intelligence and AI. Yeah. And, and you know, it, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's a different proposition. I think it scares the heck out of some folks, you yeah. know. I think, uh, I think there's great opportunity in it as well. And I think one of the things that's exciting about it is that I think the power of some of this generative AI and some of the things that we're seeing is going to enable smaller banks to be as competitive as the big banks because they're going to have access to the technology that fundamentally they've spent billions of dollars on. But we have a lot of regulatory and compliance hurdles to overcome first before we put that stuff to work. But, you know, AI is really not new. Artificial intelligence, machine learning, it's been around for quite a while. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, remember when, uh, you know, we can go back far enough to remember when, uh, you know, we, we could play chess against the machine, right? Well, that... What was that? That was artificial intelligence. Yeah, that was machine, machine learning. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. And this may have a very similar answer, but it's a little more personal. If that's okay to go down that line, one of your seminal experiences as an adult was being an innovator and creating something that changed the world and addressed a pain point, which we all hear about today, but who was thinking about it back then? What do you find most exciting about your work? Where are the areas that you are just so eager to continue moving into that you think will make a difference today? Um, you know, the, the, the first, what, you know, again, I, I, as I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I, I, I identify kind of as an, as, as an entrepreneur first, not kind of. And, and, and so one of the things that having started and built a lot of businesses and had some wonderful success and also some significant failures in my life is, you know, one of the reasons I do this work is because I love working with the companies and the founders. And also, you know, I think most entrepreneurs are wired in such a fashion that you wake up one morning, you see a problem or you see something that's broken. And we start down this path of wanting to fix that and make it better. So I get a chance to find every day different listening to the concerns of bankers, but also knowing that in some way, shape, or form, likely the work that we're doing is going to help make other people's lives better. Maybe we can help people grow wealth. Maybe we can help them improve their financial literacy, give them opportunities to invest. I mean, when you think about things today like fractional investment, mm-hmm. you know, I always laugh because I have a fraction of a, uh, of a uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a couple of stocks that are quite, quite significant in value. I couldn't afford to buy them and, and, and you know, I couldn't pay $440,000 for a share of Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> if I got, I got a little fraction of it, right? So there's, there are things that, that technology is providing that are giving us opportunities that I think are going to help hopefully make our lives better and, and make the lives of many Americans better. I think there's a big piece of that. So there's that. Um, I love the passion of community banking, and it's one of the reasons why I made the move to ICBA to work with these bankers. These are, these are good people doing good things in their communities, care about what they're doing and you know they're really very much the operators of small businesses they just happen to be banks and we have some that are very very forward thinking doing remarkable things by deploying fintechs and fintech technologies in all kinds of different ways 
that are uh, you know really making them very relevant in in the competitive environment of banking today. So um, I get a chance to, to to work with great people. I, I also have a great team at the ICBA. I work in an organization that's very passionate about its mission. So it's good to have a North Star to help guide us every day. I think with that mission, and uh, and you know I also get a chance to um, you know share some of the things that I've learned in my journey to hopefully help make these companies a little bit better. Yeah. Working with great people. Yes. I'm glad I got a chance to work with a great person today. Well, thank you. I agree. Thank you. Well, working thank with you, you. Is, is equally as good. Yeah. Wayne, thank you so much for being on Bankadelic, and I'll see you out on the convention floor. Indeed. Lou, thanks for uh, having me as a part of your show today, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. Great. Wayne Miller is the Senior Vice President, Innovation Programs at ICBA. He is in Bethany Beach, Delaware, the first state. Be sure to look for Wayne on LinkedIn. You're listening to Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic, the colorful side of finance. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at NMD Plus, based in London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas. If you like what you've heard here, be sure to check out NMD Plus's financial technology podcast, Dave and Darm Demystify, with hosts Dave Wallace and Darmesh Mystery. Bankadelic. Sponsored by the William Mills Agency. For close to 40 years, the William Mills Agency has served hundreds of companies that provide a wide range of products and services in the banking, payments, mortgage, credit union, and related markets. The William Mills Agency is the largest provider of PR and marketing services for companies that market to the financial industry. For more information, visit williammills.com. Have you thought about how you'll gain the upper hand in your search for stellar talent? Banker Hire leverages a niche industry with uncommon insight. They're committed to finding you qualified commercial and community banking, lending, compliance, HR, retail, and wealth talent. Banker Hire prides itself on listening and solving problems. Their approach is 100% hands-on and heads-up, giving you what you need to make smart, actionable decisions. For more information, visit BankerHire.com. With more than 1.2 million page views annually, Talking Biz News is the go-to source for happenings in business journalism. Whether you're a PR professional, a business journalist, or someone just breaking into the field, TBN is a source that you cannot do without. Whether you're following the Washington Post, New York Times, local media outlets, or some feisty news startup, Talking Biz News has you covered. Job openings are also listed and updated every day on the TBN website. Be sure to sign up for your free subscription to the TBN newsletter at Talking Biz News. That's Talking B-I-Z News.com. Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault. Our producer in Chicago is Ken Montone. Our business consigliere, the one and only Rob Gaynor. Dude, I totally got into the show. Thanks as always to the William Mills Agency for their generous support. Thanks also to Banker Hire, Lemonade LXP, and Talking Biz News, a division of Vested LLC. I'm Lou Carlozo. You can catch me on LinkedIn and at the Civil War reenactment as Abraham Lincoln. Until next time... 
so long. Bankadelic is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.